You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Hebrews chapter 2. And let's pray before we begin. Father, we're so grateful that you have given to us uh, your word as a revelation of your will for us in Christ Jesus and what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. And we would know all about uh, your uh, certain attributes from creation, even if we did not have your word, we would know that you are that you are mighty, that you are powerful, that you are wise, that you are infinite. But we would never know of your love and your mercy and your grace, except that you have revealed them in your word and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for both of these revelations of your gracious and saving character, and we pray that you would grant to us an ability to understand and appreciate and to obey both. May you be honored through our time here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, and we're looking at this section of Hebrews where the author, almost as if he is anticipating some objections that somebody would raise to what he has said in chapter 1. Uh, he answers these two, these two objections that he's anticipating to the revelation of that Christ is so much superior to the angels and to the angelic hosts. And one of them that we've looked at in verses 5 through 8 and 9 uh, five through nine, actually, is the objection that would say because Christ became a man, the reality of his incarnation, he was fully human, therefore he could not have been greater than the angels. If he was fully human, we know from Scripture that God created man a little lower than the angels, so if Christ became man, then he must be lower than the angels and therefore inferior to the angels. And the author answers that by showing that it was the intention of the Father in the incarnation to allow Christ and to have Christ take this inferior position so that he might raise to a place of eternal glory all those who believe in him. And though he became a man and in reality was a man in full humanity, he did not lose or sacrifice any of his divine essence, any of his divine character or nature or any of those divine attributes. He fully possessed those while at the same time being completely united with all that it means to be human, save the sin that we are familiar with. That is not an essential part of humanity but it is an accidental part of what has come to us because of the fall. So that does not prove then, because he became fully man, that does not prove that he is not greater than the angels, since he's going to take all of this redeemed humanity and exalt them to a place and a station higher than the angels and give to those the kingdom that is to come and give them authority and dominion over the world that is to come. The second question that he answers is this question, doesn't the death of Christ prove that he was less than the angels? Angels don't die, do they? Angels don't suffer and, and suffer the humiliating death of, of the fall as all of Adam's progeny does. So doesn't the fact that Christ suffered a real death as a real man evidence that he is inferior to the angels? And again, the answer is no because of what the death of Christ has done. It is not an, a death that he didn't die that death because he had to, like we have to die by virtue, by virtue of the fact that we are sinners. He died that death as a volunteer, not as a victim. And it, in fact, was the purpose and plan of the Father and of the triune God from eternity past to send the Son into the world to bear the sins of His people and to die in their stead and in their place so that they could have eternal life. And therefore, His death does not show that He is inferior to the angels since He dies not out of necessity like you and I have to die, but He dies out of the providential plan, the sovereign plan, and the intention of the Father. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. 
So that's where we pick it up now this morning in verse 10. So the fact that he was a real human is not evidence that he is less than the angels. The fact that he died a real death is not evidence that he is less than the angels. And in verses 10 through 18, the author now begins to discuss the, the work that Christ did, his death on the cross. So Hebrews, I said at the beginning, is a book about the person and the work of Christ. Now, remember when we were in John, it was that glorious time before the book of Ecclesiastes, when we were in John, we looked at mostly the person of Christ, and then we also talked about how the, the person of Christ has an impact on what he did. We looked at the person and the work of Christ, the emphasis being on who he was, he's God in human flesh. Hebrews is a little bit the opposite. The emphasis is upon the work of Christ, but the necessary background for understanding his work is in chapter 1, who is he? So Hebrews still focuses on those two uh, those two same themes, but now having discussed who he is, chapter 1, the author is now going to discuss what he has done. And it might be said that the rest of the book of Hebrews is an exposition of what the death of Christ means. What does it mean that we have this one who is both a king and our priest? Remember Psalm 110? He is a priest forever according to, to the order of Melchizedek, and he is the king who sits upon David's throne and receives the kingdom. So he is a king and a priest in one person, and the rest of Hebrews is an explanation of what that means for those for whom he has died. So now we're transitioning into talking about the death of Christ, and that's what we pick up in verse 10. Let's read together verse 10, and I'll, I want to show you I want to show you how the rest of this chapter kind of breaks down. In verses 10 through verse 13, we see that the sufferings of Christ identify him with his people. And I want you to look for, as we read these verses, I want you to look for the language of a family, father, brethren, brother, etc. Beginning of verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And that is, notice the, the language of family there, brethren, brothers, father, sons, bringing many sons to glory. The one thing, one thing that the death of Christ does is identify him with his people. We are identified with him in his death. That's verses 10 through 13. The second thing the sufferings of Christ do is destroy the power and the works of the devil. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The third thing the sufferings of Christ do is free his people from slavery. Verse 15. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And that's what we get because we are identified with Christ because of his sufferings. We are freed from that fear of death and from the slavery that we had. And the fourth thing that the sufferings of Christ do in verses 16 through 18 is qualify him as a merciful high priest for his people. Look at verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was, has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So the sufferings of Christ identify him with his people. They free us from the fear of death. They release us from the slavery to Satan and destroy his works. And they qualify him and perfect him as a merciful and faithful high priest who can sympathize with us. Now those are sort of four general categories. Today we're going to be looking at the first of that, that he had, it, his sufferings identify him with us, with his people. And we're just going to be looking at verse 10. If by going through verse 10, 10 through 18, you thought to yourself, oh, we're going to be covering a serious chunk of material today. Yeah, some of you are already shaking your head, and yep, 
We're not. We're going to be looking at verse 10, and we're going to see three things here about the death of Christ or the sufferings of Jesus. Number one, that his sufferings are according to the nature and the will of God. That's important. Second, they result in glory for his people. And third, they perfect him as our Savior. Now, if you're worried a little bit about the, the, the idea that Jesus Christ was perfected by suffering, and you're wondering, that's, that's odd language. How, if he was already perfect, how was he perfected by sufferings? That sort of implies that he was imperfect before he was perfected, right? We'll deal with that and today, but just put that for a second on the back burner. Don't, don't stumble over that as we go through everything else, okay? So the sufferings of Jesus, they are according to the nature and the will of God. They result in glory for his people, and they perfect him as our Savior. So we'll look at the first one. They are according to the nature and the will of God. I, I haven't forgotten about what I promised you last week. I promised you last week that we would deal with the last phrase of verse 9. What does it mean that he tasted death for everyone, Right? If he tasted death for everyone, what does it mean mean to taste death? And if he tasted death for everyone, then why isn't everyone saved? I'm going to talk about that in connection with the second point. So put that on the back burner. you got a lot of stuff on the back burner already. Okay, now notice first of all in verse 10, the, the word it is fitting. The term, it was fitting. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That word fitting, what was fitting was that the father should perfect the son through sufferings. It was fitting that the father should bring many sons to glory through what his son suffered. That was fitting. Now what does the word fitting mean? The word fitting means something that is proper, something that is appropriate, or something that is suitable. And the word oftentimes has a moral connotation to it, and that's important. It means what is proper, but not what is proper as in, I wore the proper tie with this shirt. That's not a moral issue. This might be a fitting tie to wear with this shirt, but it wouldn't be immoral if I wore an orange tie with this shirt. That would actually look bad. But if I read, wore like a, a red tie with this shirt, that would be improper or not fitting, but it's not a moral issue. When we talk about it was fitting for him to perfect the author of our salvation through suffering, we're talking about something that has moral connotations to it. So here are a couple instances where that word fitting is used in a moral sense. Titus chapter 2 verse 1, where Titus is describing us as adorning the gospel by the right conduct of our lives. right, Living lives that adorn the gospel through our good works. So Paul says in Titus chapter 2 verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That is, the the application, the moral behavior, the moral character, the holiness for the saints. Speak those things and teach those things. The the moral aspect of Christianity which befits or is appropriate to the sound doctrine that they are also teaching. As we teach sound doctrine, but we also say here's the application of it. Here are the moral things, the ethical things that ought to characterize our lives as a result of these things of sound doctrine being true. 1 Timothy 2 verse 10. But rather by means of good works as is proper or fitting for women making a claim to godliness. In other words, if you have women who make a claim to godliness, they ought to behave or comport themselves in such a way, in an ethical and moral sense, in the congregation of God, in such a way that comports or matches up, is fitting with the sound doctrine that they claim. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper or fitting, same word, among saints. That is that our moral conduct in terms of our morality and things which are impure and greed ought not even to be named among us. Why? Because this is fitting where it's proper and appropriate. So it was, we could say in verse 10, the first phrase, it was morally appropriate and morally fitting for God to bring many sons to glory by predetermining and intending the suffering of his son. That's important. It is morally appropriate in what God does. It is is 
it is in, uh, compatible, we would say, with his, with his nature and with his character for God to intend the suffering of the Son in bringing many sons to glory. So the one who is uh, here described as the author of salvation is Jesus. He is the one who is perfected by suffering. And the one who, for whom are all things and through whom are all things is the Father. So it is appropriate, morally speaking, for the Father to punish the Son in our stead. That's important. Now, listen, if it was morally fitting for the Father to will the suffering of His Son for people's good and for His glory, that's this, it is morally appropriate for God to will my suffering if it can result in somebody's good or in God's glory. God intending or willing or determining that I should suffer and that I might endure pain or suffer some horrible thing, if it results in His glory and in the good of others, there is no moral problem with that. Now, this answers an aspect of, of some atheists and, and critics of Christianity who would say things like this, for instance, that, that God's slaying an innocent person. That's just not befitting or morally proper for a God of love to do that. Heard people say that? The idea that God would slay Jesus or uh, offer him up as a sacrifice in our stead, the fact that God would do that, that's morally improper. It's not right for God to do that. If God is a God of love, why can't he just forgive all people? Why does he have to demand the death of an innocent victim? And the fact that the Father would demand the death of an innocent victim, that's not morally right for a God of love and, and goodness and graciousness and kindness. That's not right for him to do that. Or some people would say that a religion of blood sacrifices and suffering is not fitting for a God of love. Look at the Old Testament and they see that even, even just outside the garden that God uh, slayed an animal and covered Adam and Eve with the skins of that animal. And that Noah offered an animal sacrifice, and Abel offered an animal sacrifice, and Abraham offered an animal sacrifice. And the covenant that God made with Abraham required the death of animals and the shedding of blood. And then he instituted on, uh, on Mount Sinai the, the covenant with the nation of Israel and required animal sacrifices. The entire Old Testament is a, is a bloody religion that is established there. All the covenants and everything regarding God's relationship with His people, it, it all revolves around sacrifices and blood, the death of the innocent in the place of the guilty. That's the Old Testament economy. And then in the New Testament, people think that, well, that the God of the Old Testament, He got it all wrong. He was wrong. Jesus, He got it right. It was all love and grace. And then we find out that Jesus died in the New Testament and shed His blood. And guess what? Our entire salvation hinges upon that reality. And some people, and this was... This was uh, pr uh, I should say this was uh, something that was popular in emergent church circles not so long ago where they said that the, the teaching that the Father would require the death of the Son for our salvation, that was something akin to divine child abuse. That was the statement that they made. That's divine child abuse. Well, it's not divine child abuse. Because in the instance of the death of Christ, what we have is the one who has been appointed as the judge of all things. The one who himself will cast unbelievers into eternal perdition and the impenitent into eternal perdition. That one who has wrath against the unbelieving because they are rebels against his kingdom, that same one is the one who comes and takes upon himself human flesh to die in the place of his people. That is an instance of the judge stepping down from his seat in the courtroom and bearing the penalty that he and the laws of justice demand. So Jesus dies not as a victim, he dies as a volunteer, willingly laying down his life for his people, bearing the wrath and the justice that he himself demands. It's not divine child abuse. Because Jesus wasn't involuntarily or unwillingly whipped in our stead. Instead, he came on a rescue mission to willingly and voluntarily lay down his life for us. 
Okay, so this, what we're talking about, this is a great exchange where he is treated like a sinner in my stead so that I can be treated as if I am righteous the way that he lived his life. That is not unjust. It is not immoral. It's not in any way inappropriate. It is fitting for him through whom and to whom are all things to perfect the author of our salvation through his sufferings. The sufferings of Christ are morally appropriate in the plan of God according to his nature and according to his character. This was right, it is just, it is holy, it is pure, and it is beautiful. And all of the blood and the sacrifice of the Old Testament, what they tell us is an innocent person has to die in the place of a guilty man or woman in order for that guilty man or woman to be set free, to be justified and declared righteous. That's what all the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed forward to. And now we stand on this side and we understand exactly what happened on the cross. That the innocent one suffered in the place of the guilty so that the guilty can go free and the guilty can be justified and treated as if they are righteous. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the exchange. He takes my guilt, I get his righteousness. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That's not divine child abuse. It's the perfect judge stepping in to bear our penalty. And it is fitting. It's morally appropriate. It's holy, it's righteous, it's glorious, it's beautiful in every respect. So that's the first thing, that this suffering of Christ is completely fitting. It is justice on display, it is grace on display, it is the place where, where mercy and justice meet, where love and divine wrath kiss each other is at the cross of Christ. Okay? Second, the sufferings of Jesus result in glory for his people. Look what he says in verse 10. It was fitting for him for, who, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. This was the end result. This is the dominion for which we were created. This is we get the kingdom, and he gives us the kingdom, and he shares his father's throne with us. Just as he shares his throne with his father, he shares, uh, just as the father shares his throne with him, he shares his throne with us so that we get the glory that he gets as a result of his suffering. And God has created us to share in that glory, and Christ has suffered and died in order to purchase and secure that glory for us, his people. And this is the end result of our salvation, that we, as his sons, may be brought to glory. Notice, again, the familiar language of verse 10. We are the sons who are brought to glory, and then you'll notice in verse 11, reference to the Father. In verse 11, reference to brethren. In verse 12, reference to brethren. And in verse 13, reference to children. There's a family aspect going on here with Christ as our elder brother, as it were, to whom the entire inheritance has been given. He does something in our stead and in our place so that we receive all of the benefits that would normally accrue to him. We get all of those. And there must be this adoption, this family relationship, in order for us to be given the kingdom just as the Lord Jesus will be given the kingdom. There has to be that family aspect. And so it is the intention of God to bring these many sons to glory. And listen, if it is God's intention to bring many sons to glory, what are the chances that that is going to fail? Is it possible for that to fail? Is it possible for God to say, I have a desire and an intention to bring X number of people to eternal life, and then for the result of that intention and desire to be that X number of people minus 10 actually are given eternal life. Or, if the Father has determined to bring many sons to glory, what are the chances that he could fail in that? The chances that he would fail in that are zero. He cannot fail in what he intends to do, and he cannot fail in what he has purposed to do, because he will complete every good work. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, and Jesus will not fail to raise up all those to whom he has given eternal life, which is all those to whom the Father has given to him and who come to him. If it is intention of the Son to save an individual, that intention by the Son cannot fail to come to pass. 
It cannot fail to happen. It must happen because Jesus cannot be a failure. He is not a failure. Now notice the contrast in verse 10. He is the one who suffers and we get the glory. He suffers and we get the glory. God brings us to glory through his suffering. And so it is his suffering that results in us being glorified and in us receiving the kingdom. So as I said earlier, the father treated Christ as if he had committed every sin that I committed so that he can treat me as if I had done every righteous deed that Jesus did. That's the exchange. Not just that he treated Christ as if, I had, as if he had sinned every sin that I committed so that I could be just innocent, but actually so that he could treat me as if I had done every righteous thing that Jesus ever did. So all of his righteousness becomes mine. This is the doctrine of justification. This is what we call justification. That God not only declares us, not only declares us forgiven, but he declares us righteous because of what Christ has done. And he gets the reward for his suffering. So what does Jesus get out of this great exchange? What does Jesus get as a result of his suffering? He gets a redeemed bride. He gets a people who praise his name for all of eternity. He gets us. Boy, what a prize we are, aren't we? He gets us glorified. So maybe that's better. That is better. But we, his bride, his people, we get to share his glory and he gets us as his possession. Now what about verse 9? Because we're talking then about the result of his suffering. If he, if he is going to suffer, he is going to bring his people to glory through that. That is the most certain result of that. So what does it mean at the end of verse 9 then when it says that he, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone? And I asked this question at the end of last week. What does it mean that he tasted death? And what does it mean that he tasted it for everyone? What terms and in what way? Did he taste death for everyone? Let's deal, first of all, with this phrase, tasting death. The idea of tasting death or tasting something is a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew uh, uh, colloquialism. That was the word. Sorry. Things more than like two, two syllables have to take a while to get past the lips. It was a Hebrew colloquialism or a figure of speech that described eating or tasting or drinking something to its fullest. Now, you and I use the term tasting. Right? You, you go to the, the potluck this afternoon and you might be sitting next to somebody and say, did you taste that, taste that potato salad? And what you mean by that is, did you get a little tiny helping of that potato salad and, and taste it so that you know what it tastes like? When you talk about tasting death in, a Hebrews, in the sense of this Hebrew metaphor or colloquialism, it means that you eat or drink or take in something to the fullest measure. In other words, when we say that he, he drank the bitter cup that is reserved for me, we sing that song, it means that he drank it to the dredges. So if I wanted to use this Hebrew colloquialism this afternoon, I said, did you, did you taste the, the potato salad? What I would be asking you is, did you take that bucket of potato salad and eat every last bite of it from the top to the bottom of it and then take a, a spatula and squeegee out the bowl, bowl and eat every last bit of it, taste it in its fullness? So when it says that he tasted death for everyone, the author is not saying that he sort of sipped at death or that he sort of appeared to die or kind of sort of died a little bit, but rather that he suffered fully all that is death and he experienced to the last, to the nth, to the very final degree, all that it means to endure that suffering and then to ultimately die. Jesus didn't just appear to die. He didn't just kind of sort of die. He didn't die in a sense. He expired on this earth and died and experienced a tasted death from top to bottom, every last bit of it, emotional suffering, physical anguish, mental and spiritual suffering, all of that, he bore every element of death. So there is nothing about any death that you could possibly ever die that he has not tasted and endured and experienced in its fullness. That's what it means, to taste death. Now, if he did this, then why do I die? If he tasted death for me, and he ate the entire bucket of death on my behalf, why is it that I still die? And I get to look forward to death. 
It is because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So though I am renewed in the inner man, this outer man must perish. This body must perish. This body must die so that it can be renewed and resurrected again and raised up on the last day. So his death and experiencing that death secured my salvation and guarantees my resurrection and your resurrection if you're trusting in him. That's why we still have to die. Now, who is the everyone for whom he has done this? Now, if you believe that Jesus Christ died and paid for every last sin of every last person who has ever lived on the face of the planet, from Adam through the Amorite high priest who sacrificed children on the altar of Moloch, to Pharaoh, who even while Jesus was suffering on the cross, he himself was suffering in, in hell, all the way to everybody today, unbelievers, non-elect, elect, every last person who has ever lived, then you are stuck with a moral or judicial dilemma. And the ju judicial and moral dilemma is this. If he tasted death in that sense, bearing the penalty and the burden for the sin of every last person who has ever lived, then I would have to ask you this question, why then are those people who are impenitent and in hell, why are they being suffered? For what crime? If the justice and the law of God is satisfied concerning their sin because Christ bore it all, then they are being punished in hell unjustly if the penalty in full has been paid completely for them. That's the moral dilemma. Okay? If you believe in a universal atonement. So you have to say if you believe in universal atonement that he didn't actually die in the, as a substitute in the place of anybody in particular. He died sort of for everyone, but is not actually a substitute for anyone in specific. And people who believe that would point to verse 10 and they would say, see, it says that he tasted death for everyone and everyone always means everyone. Or does everyone always mean everyone? It is possible for us to use the term everyone and not mean everyone, and we do it all the time. It is possible for us to use the term everyone to refer to every single person who has ever lived. We can do that. For instance, if I say everyone is created in the image of God, everyone bears the image of God, then what I mean by that is whether you're Adam or Pharaoh or the Amorite high priest I mentioned earlier, or you sitting here or me, or whether you're deformed or handicapped or born with a deep birth defect or whatever it is, because we are human by nature, the fact that we're human, everybody born of human parents bears the image of God because we are created in God's image. And that, in that case, saying the term everyone would be referring to everyone. We can also use the term everyone in a second sense, and that is to describe everyone without distinction, but not everyone without exception. So if I were to say to you that Jesus died not just for the Jews, but for everyone, I would be saying that he didn't just die for those who are ethnically Jewish, but that he died and he is the savior that is presented for the whole world. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or something in between or some mixture of the two, the death of Christ is intended to be this, his death is intended to be sufficient for uh, everyone, not just Jews, but Jews and could be Gentiles as well. Or I could use the term everyone to describe everyone who is inside of a particular group of whom I'm speaking. I'll give you an illustration. Several weeks ago, well, I should say it this way. As many of you know, I'm due to get a raise. Now, not that I'm getting a salary increase, but that my oldest son is getting married in about seven days. And that's going to mean, that's going to mean about $400 a month salary increase for me. And that's just, that's just the food budget. That's not including incidentals and consumables or electricity. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. <laughs> the thought of a lower electrical bill gets me every time. Okay? So several weeks ago, when we were over at the school, I said to you during an announcement time, everyone is invited to the wedding. Now, 
Let's say that you heard that announcement and then you went out that afternoon, you set up a tent outside of Walmart, you started handing out invitations. Jim said everyone's invited to the wedding, so he must mean everyone in the world is invited to the wedding because he said everyone. And then you do a door-to-door campaign like you're running for office, handing out invitations to the wedding, and you have a buddy who's having a family reunion that next, that, the next weekend during the, during the wedding, and you call him up and you say, hey, I know you and your family are going to be in town. I know there's about 100, 150 of you. You're all invited to the pastor's kid's wedding. Why? Because Jim said everyone from the pulpit, right? Now, when I say everyone in that context, do you think that I'm talking about everyone in the whole world is invited to that wedding? Or would you glean from the context of the people to whom I'm speaking and about whom I'm speaking and the incident that I am describing, would you instead assume that what I meant by everyone was everyone present or everyone in a particular group or everyone that I was addressing? You would allow the context to determine what I mean by everyone, wouldn't you? So does the context of everyone in verse 9 define what it is that the author is talking about, what he means by everyone? It does. Let me show it to you. In verse 5, he describes those to whom the world to come will be subject. Is that everyone in the world? That's all of the redeemed, is it not? It's not everyone in the world. It's all the saved. Look at verse 10. Even in our own passage, he talks about sons being brought to glory. Who are the sons who are brought to glory? Does, that, does everybody get glorified? Is everybody a son? Not everybody is a son. Specifically, in verse 11, he talks about those who are sanctified or made holy. In verse 11, he talks about those who have God as their father. In verse 11, he talks about those whom Christ calls brethren. In verse 12, we have those who refer to as brethren. In verse 13, the children who are given to Christ by the Father. That is a specific group, not everyone. In verse 14, he talks about the children of God. In verse 14, those who are no longer under the power of the devil. In verse 15, those who were slaves but are now free. In verse 16, he talks about the descendants of Abraham. In Scripture, who are the descendants of Abraham? Is that everybody in the world? Now, who's the descendant of Abraham? We are descendants of Abraham by faith. So we are heirs to the promise because of what God has done through Abraham. We get in on that promise, that blessing of eternal life, because we are, in a spiritual sense, the descendants of Abraham. In verse 17... He talks about those who are his, that is Christ's brethren. In verse 17, those for whom he is a merciful and faithful high priest. Is Jesus Christ a high priest to everybody who has ever lived all over the planet? Anywhere? In verse 17, or verse, uh, yeah, 17, those whose sins have been propitiated or satisfied. In verse 18, those to whom Christ gives aid in temptation. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, he mentions the holy brethren and those who are partakers of a heavenly calling. Now, all of those descriptions that I gave you, brothers and brethren and those given by to the Father to Christ and those who are sanctified, those who call God as their Father, those who belong to Him in a special relationship, those whose sins have been forgiven, those who are partaking of a holy calling, who are called holy brethren. Does that describe, like the author in this context, those to whom the kingdom is eventually going to be giving is describing every individual who has ever lived anywhere on the face of the planet through all of human history. Is that what he means by everyone? Or does the context determine what he means by everyone? He means everyone within this specific group, the specific group that he is addressing and describing all the way through this chapter. It is not every last individual who has ever lived for whom Christ has tasted death. He particularly has tasted death for those who are his brethren for those who belong to the Father and are sons, for the sons who are brought to glory, for those who are given the kingdom, to those to whom everything is eventually going to be subject in the world to come. On behalf of all of those people, every last one of them who belongs to him, he has tasted death in their stead. You can either believe in a universal atonement or you can believe in a substitutionary atonement, but you cannot believe in both. If Christ died as a substitute, he did not do it in the place of all people where all people would be saved. It's universal and it's a logical result of that idea. 
So if, if, he, if he died as a substitute in a specific place of specific individuals, then it is the everyone who is determined by this context. And I hope that that makes sense. Right? So did he taste death for everyone? Yes. Everyone that he is describing. The sons, the holy brethren, the partakers of the holy calling, those who are redeemed, those who are sanctified, those for whom Christ has died, these are the ones for whom he has tasted death. And he has tasted it on their behalf. The suffering of Jesus results without fail all the time in the glorification of all those for whom he paid the debt in his death. Let me say it again. The suffering of Jesus results without fail in the glorification of all those for whom he died. He will not lose any for whom he gave a sacrifice. He cannot, he will not fail to bring the many sons to glory, all of whom for whom he died. Third, the sufferings of Jesus perfect him as our Savior. So they are according to the nature of willing, will of God. It is fitting and morally appropriate for God to allow and to determine that he should suffer in our stead, morally good thing. The sufferings of Christ always result in glory for those who belong to him, for all of those, everyone for whom he has died. And third, the sufferings of Jesus perfect him as our Savior. Now, that's kind of odd, odd language, isn't it? They perfect him. Now, if you're keeping track of what the word of the day is today, the word is perfect and not perfect. Right? Again, so not every time I say perfect do I mean perfect, and not every time do I say perfect do I mean perfect, so keep it straight. Don't get those confused if you're taking notes and, and keeping track. We're talking about perfecting, not perfecting. All right? He is perfecting the author of our salvation through sufferings. Now, what, that's kind of odd language because what does it mean that Jesus was perfected? If he was already perfect, which we assume that he is, right? Perfect from birth. He has to be morally perfect. He has to be perfect in every way. Is, don't, don't we say that Jesus was perfect in wisdom, perfect in love, perfect in power, perfect in all of his attributes from the moment of his conception all the way through to the, to the last breath that he died, he was perfect in every way. In what sense then does God perfect the author of our salvation through sufferings? The word perfect here, and oh, by the way, the language, the same language is used over in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. You can take note of that if you would, where we read that although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. What? Jesus learned something? Jesus the man did learn something. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So twice, at least, in the book of Hebrews, we read about Jesus having been made perfect. What is that describing? The word perfect here uh, is a word that means to complete, to finish, to end, or to accomplish. It talks about making something perfect or making something complete. And it's not speaking here in terms of his character. It is speaking here in terms of his office and what he does. Now let me explain the difference. Yes, we would say that Jesus was perfect in his character, morally perfect, perfect in wisdom, perfect in all of his attributes. But in terms of his office and what he did to save us, until he suffered and died, he was not perfect in that sense. Let me, let me give you an illustration. Let's say that Jesus came to earth and took upon himself a human body, and instead of offering himself up on the cross in 33 AD, instead, he, he went into the city of Jerusalem and took one of the lambs from one of the herds in Israel, and he brought down into the temple and offered that on the altar, as all the other Jews did on that Passover day. Would his offering of that lamb have saved us? Could he have offered that lamb and turned around and walked away and said, it is finished, it's done? Would that sacrifice have been a perfect sacrifice in that sense? A complete sacrifice? It would not have been. What was necessary for him to come to our aid when we are tempted? It was necessary for him to be tempted. And because he was tempted, he is perfectly able to come to our assistance. 
because he endured pain and suffering and humiliation, he is perfectly able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Because he endured death, he is perfectly able to secure us through death. Because he rose from the dead, he is perfectly able to accomplish our resurrection at the end of time as well. So there was something that was necessary for him to accomplish all that the Father gave him to accomplish. He had to endure temptation, he had to endure suffering, he had to suffer death, and he had to rise again. And after he had done all of those things, in that process, God made him perfectly fit, perfectly equipped, perfectly able to sanctify us and to see us through death and to save us. Right? It has nothing to do with his character, who he is in a moral or ethical sense, but it does have to do with what it is that he accomplished and what he did in terms of his office as our high priest. So that language, the perfection or perfected priest, is used in the Old Testament, and this is language that's something that the author, or the, the audience of Hebrews would have been familiar with. They would have been familiar with this language concerning the priesthood. Because before a priest could, could come into the Holy of Holies, before he could walk behind that curtain on the Day of Atonement and offer a sacrifice and atonement there on the, on, on the Ark of the Covenant for the sins of the people, before he could do that, he had to go through a long process. That involved ceremonial washings and cleansings of the body, and then he had to put on robes, and then priestly vestments, and he had to consecrate himself, and then offer sacrifice for himself. And after he had gone through all of this process and done all of those things, then the Jews would say that the high priest was perfected consecrated, ready and able to do the work that he had been given to do. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Having endured the temptation and endured the suffering and suffered death and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has been perfected through all of that in terms of what he is able to accomplish for us. It was necessary that he suffer. It was necessary that he rise again. It was necessary that he endure all of that so that he could save us. And if he did not do those things, he could not have saved us because that was what was necessary to save us. So the perfection here, being made perfect, means, think of it in these terms, he is perfectly able to do what we need him to do because he has already done that. He is perfectly able to see us through death, to usher us into glory, to bring many sons to glory because of what he has endured. So who is it that is perfected and how is he perfected? He's perfected through sufferings and notice that the author calls him in verse 10, the author of our salvation. In the ESV, it refers to the founder and translates that word as founder of our salvation. The King James and the New King James use the term captain of our salvation. Uh, the NASB says the author of our salvation. It's a word that describes somebody who is a, a founder or an originator, a pioneer or a leader in some sense. And so we could say that Jesus is the author of our salvation in the sense that he is the initiator of it. He is the one. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who initiates this and has done all of the work to bring salvation to completion. So he's the author of our faith or the author of our salvation. He's also the pioneer of our salvation, or we could say the trailblazer. It's kind of what the idea was here. Somebody who went ahead of you and, and sort of blazed away or, or walked a path that you would follow him. He was the pioneer or the, 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 the author of it and, and the founder of it. He's the one who went ahead of us and did something for us, and now we follow him. So what is it that he has done? He has endured temptation. He has endured suffering. He has died, he rose again, and he went to the Father's right hand where he sits in glory. That's the path that he has trailblazed for us. Right through death, resurrection, and eternal glory. And this is what we are called to follow him in. So he is the founder or the, the trailblazer of our salvation because before Christ came, all we would do is, is go into death but never out the other side. We needed somebody to go into death, through death, through resurrection, and into the glory of God so that he could bring many sons to glory, all those who are in him. And in that sense, he is the founder, the initiator, the author, and the trailblazer of our salvation. He has blazed the trail of obedience and suffering right into eternal glory. And God has perfected him. He is perfectly able 
to bring us down that same path and to secure and guarantee our glory. Why? Because he has done it ahead of us. He's the founder of it. So does the death of Jesus mean that he is less than the angels? It does not. No. It was necessary that he be greater than the angels so that when he took upon himself human flesh and suffered and died in our stead, that he could pioneer our salvation, that he could blaze the trail to eternal glory, and it was appropriate and morally good that the Father would perfect him through sufferings to secure the everlasting glory of all of his sons. Let's pray. Father, you have been so merciful to us to give us salvation, which we do not deserve, and we cannot even begin to comprehend the depths of what Christ suffered in our stead or the glories that await those who are your children, who belong to him. We thank you that by your grace and by your providence that we are able to call him our brother and call you our father and look forward to sharing your glory for all eternity. We thank you that you are glorious, that you are infinite, that you are perfect, and that you are a promise-keeping God. And because you have determined to save us who have believed upon Christ, we know that it most certainly will come to pass. We thank you that Christ cannot fail to save all of those for whom he has died. And we thank you that he has tasted death in our stead so that we might have eternal life. We love you and we praise you. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.